It's great to look back, to reflect, to remember the great times and the difficult ones. In the last 10 years, hundreds of lives have been changed. Families have been restored, marriages have been mended, and forgiveness. Forgiveness has been granted. Chains have been broken and true freedom has been experienced. As we remember, we reflect on the loss of those we loved, the joys and the sorrow. We've seen people come and go. Some have lost their way, others have drifted. And all the while, many of us have forgotten why we're here, why we exist, what the Lord requires of us. Reflecting gives us a chance to pause and consider all the Lord has done, all He wants to do. We can learn from our past, remind ourselves of our commitments, and to remember the words of Jesus. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. Good morning, church. Um, I'm very pleased to be able to share with, uh, with you guys this morning um, as we continue this series uh, called Remember. Uh, the last several weeks, if you've just joined us this morning, we've been, we've been talking about the church. Um, we've talked about how the church began, how it was God's idea. It was nothing that was man-made. If we are, if we are the ecclesia, the called out ones, it was the Lord, it was God who called us out and established his church. As we see here, he did that through Peter, is on that rock that he would build his church. And as we talked about that, how it came to be, but last week we talked about the mission of the church, what the message is, and, and how we should be sharing that message. But this morning, uh, we're going to talk about the leadership of the church. If we, have, if we have why it exists, how it exists, what the message is, then, what the message is, but now let's talk through what it looks like to, to be led in the church and to lead the church. Now, outside of the church, when we think about the secular world and we think about leadership in the secular world, um, we can see very quickly the emphasis that is placed on good leadership and the utter need in, in, in many places throughout our society where good leadership is needed. You look at our governments. There's a need for good leadership there. When you see poor leadership in those areas, you see the effect that that then has on a country. But you can look also to corporations, to organizations, to schools, to sports teams. People are hired or fired. They're let go or not. They're given raises and promotions based on how well they lead. But oftentimes we have a misconception of leadership as well. We look at the CEOs or the executives as the ones that are leading a company to its success or failure. But oftentimes you see that leadership doesn't just happen at the, stop, at the top. Leadership happens at every area or every department within a corporation or within a school or, with on, or on a team. You see on a football team there is the head coach, but there are assistant coaches as well that lead in the same way. But all are affected by each other. But good leadership there matters. If you type leadership into a search, uh, search box, you'll find article after article after article, biography after biography of some historical figure or a great leader throughout history to where you can learn how to develop this skill of leadership. Millions of dollars have been spent on conferences and speakers to help develop this skill. Countless books have been written. But all this started with not with a John C. Maxwell writing a book, but it started with the Lord. If, Lord. if the Lord, if God instituted the church, he also instituted leadership. If you go back to the garden, 
when he creates everything and he sets man in the garden and he gives him dominion over the entirety of creation. He gives him leadership over the creation, the perfect creation that he just made. But you can very quickly see the effect of poor leadership in Genesis 3 with the fall. So leadership matters. If it matters in the secular world, how much more should it matter in God's church? There's an African proverb that says, says an army of sheep led by a lion can defeat an army of lions led by a sheep. And this conveys, conveys that idea that leadership and good leadership greatly matters. So when we think about it in terms of the church, how much more important should it be for those that are in the church? You can see as you read the Gospels, Jesus, how he opposes the Pharisees and their poor leadership of his people. Countless times he opposes them and rebukes them for their poor leadership. Then you see with the disciples and the apostles in the early church, the apostle Paul and the strength of his leadership. And this morning we're going to look at what the quality of leaders should be, what the qualifications of leaders, what leaders should have and as it pertains to leading in God's church. So if you have your Bibles, turn with, turn with me to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're, we're going to look at some the words that Paul writes to Timothy, this young leader in the Ephesian church. Now the Ephesian church, as you're turning there, I want to kind of give us some context because we can read through this list that Paul gives him in, in chapter 3 of the qualifications for leaders, and we can just take it just on that, but if we gain context to what's happening within that church, it's going to help us to understand this and grab the importance of this leadership on a deeper, deeper level. So the Ephesian church was established by Paul long before he leaves Timothy there. So Paul establishes this church. He In Acts 19, you can read that he pastored that church for about three years, but then when Paul departs, over time, things begin to fall apart. You begin to see the effect and the clear, poor leadership that begins to happen within the Ephesian church to where at some point he leaves Timothy and he says, you're going to remain at Ephesus and I need you to set some things back in order because what's happened in that church is that false teachers have begun to, to rise up within that body. You see the poor leadership of those that, left, that Paul left there begin to slide off and to allow a lot of false teaching and a lot of false doctrine began to happen within this church and they struggled in many areas. So Paul writes to Timothy, says, I'm leaving you there. And in chapters one and two, he tells him, here's what you're gonna do. Here's why you're there. He tells him chapter two, that you should be praying for people. Here's what orderly worship looks like to highlight the disorder that was happening. And then verse, and in chapter three, he tells Timothy, now this is what leadership looks like. You see what poor leadership looks like? This is why you're there. Now, this is what the quality of leaders looks like. So if you have your Bibles, uh, read with me, starting in chapter 3, verse 1, this list. So the qualifications for overseers or leaders. He says, the, the, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up and conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders." so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. 
Now, many translations in many of your Bibles, you may see at the, the heading for that section as the qualifications for overseers or leaders. But starting in verse 8, you may see another heading in your Bible that says qualifications for deacons. But the word for deacons is literally servants. So he tells Timothy, here's what, here's what you're there for. Here's how you begin to set things back in order. Here's what leadership looks like and what leaders should be. But he follows that in verse 8 with here's what the servants of the church should look like as well. So he makes a distinction in verse 8. He says, deacons likewise. So a separate group from the leaders. But I want to read through this as well because it pertains to us. But there's something that he says in there that helps us to understand more of what that leadership should be. So in verse 8, he says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And then in verse 10, he says, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons. So he says, let them also. So he says, deacons likewise, addressing a separate group of people, but you don't read, we didn't read in the qualifications for elders anything about testing. Let them be tested first. But Paul says here to them, to Timothy, he says, let them also be tested first. So in context, it implies if the deacons are to be tested before they're able to serve, then it stands to that the elders, the leaders of that church, should be tested as well. And he says, let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. There's going to be an approval that has to be present before they're allowed to serve. Then verse 11 says, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul outlines these qualifications. And as we look at that list, it can seem simple. Maybe not overly simple, but there is a simplicity to the items in this list. We really don't have to break apart or exposit what it means to not be a drunkard, what it means to not be quarrelsome. So he's not running around picking fights. That's relatively clear. But there are a few challenges with some interpretation of what he might mean with such things. So not to spend a whole lot of time, but just to note for you and I this morning, when he says in verse 2 for the elder, he says that he must be the husband of one wife. Now sometimes in some places we could interpret that to mean that he cannot be divorced. If he's been divorced in the past, then therefore he's disqualified in the present to serve as an elder. But as we think through that real quickly, if you look at the tense of the verbs in here, in verse 2, he says that an overseer must be. In verse 4, he must. Verse 6, he must not be. Verse 7, moreover, he must be. Every one of those has to do with present tense. He says that, that, that in the present tense, when these men, in order for them to be qualified, they need to hold these qualities presently and faithfully From this point moving forward, he doesn't say anything about past tense. And if you think about Jesus, whenever we come to salvation, the number one thing that would qualify anyone to lead in God's church is first to be saved, to have the presence of God in their life. But what happens whenever someone comes to salvation? The old is gone and the new has come. So we should be careful. The point here is to be careful not to put something in the text that God does not. If God does not hold the past sin against someone presently, we should not either. So let us be careful then to not put something into God's word that is not directly there. Now, if there is a man who's been divorced four different times in his past 
And the last one was a few years ago. There's a conversation that needs to be had. Wisdom needs, needs to be put there. But the point is that if the Lord does not hold past sin against someone, if they're presently faithful and they're serving within the body, we should not, be, we should not disqualify them simply on that. So keep that in your mind as you look at these qualifications and the way we qualify men to lead. So as again, as we look at this list, um, what does it mean for those that are not overseers or deacons necessarily? If we come off of deacons and let's just, just, just look more, more intently at leadership, if that's our topic, for those of us in here who are not overseers, we look at this list of qualifications of what they need to be in order to lead. What does that mean for us? Is Paul decide, des- describing a super Christian? If we were to take an account of our lives based on that, well, I'm a little quarrelsome. I'm disqualified. But I'm not a leader, so does that matter for me? But it's important for us, as Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, he left him there because this church is in trouble. He's saying, though these leaders should have these qualities, but what is, what is the point of a leader? Is it to just lead people blindly, or is it to just set an example? If an organization is going to succeed in its work, the leaders at the top should lead in such an example to where those below aspire to be that. But though everyone in here may not aspire to, to be an overseer or a leader, we should all desire to be qualified to be so. Now these, these characteristics or these, these items that we read, it's important to note that they are primarily, they have to do with character, not ability. Because oftentimes in the secular world, again, when you think of good leaders, what do we look for in good leaders? But this list, Paul doesn't say anything about stern but fair, able to lead a meeting, is confident under pressure or calm under pressure. It doesn't, it doesn't say that he should be attentive to detail. Paul doesn't outline abilities. Paul outlines character, the quality of a man's character in this. So the world qualifies leaders based on ability, but God does so based on character and the quality of that character and then he gifts people with ability god 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 seldom calls the equipped but he equips the called is the idea but this all pertains to everyone not just the leaders the leaders are the examples if someone were to come to you and say hey what is what does a christian look like or what should a christian look like you ought to be able to point to an elder and say follow that guy around for two or three days and you will learn what it means to be a christian Because this list is not a leadership list. This is a Christianity list. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. If they're going to lead the church, they should have the qualities of a Christian. But every one of us, if we are called out of darkness into his wonderful life, if the old is in fact gone and the new has come, this is what we should all look like. And all in that be qualified, if so called, to lead within God's church. Ephesus did not have this at this point in time. So now the question that I have and I think through is where then do leaders come? Where should leaders in the church come from? And simply, they should come from within the church. So if they come from within the church, then who is qualified? In order to find someone that's qualified, as he said, first let them be tested. They need to be approved. But where does approval begin? And I think this for us this morning is very important for the church as a whole. 
specifically even our church, any local expression, this next point is very important when it comes to approval and who is actually qualified. If you flip with me over to 2 Timothy in chapter 2. So a few years after Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, a few years later, he writes the second, he writes to Timothy again, and we find that Timothy's getting worn out. This is how bad the situation is at, at, at Ephesus, is that ministry is wearing him down. He is getting tired. So Paul writes to him and encourages him to, to strengthen himself. Be strong, not in your own strength, but be strong in the Lord. Teach what you have to faithful men so that they can teach then to faithful men again, and so on and so on. But he's encouraging Timothy to to be strong in the Lord. But in chapter 2, verse 15, he says this to Timothy. And for me, this has very recently spoke to my own heart with such gravity to get me to really look at myself, to take focus off of everyone else but look inward. And if we talk about approval, this is where I believe that we should start. And in verse 15, Paul says this to Timothy. He says, do your best to present yourself to God, don't do your best to present yourself to men. Don't do your best to present yourself to the church. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. He says, a worker that has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And there are some profound things in this statement that Paul says to Timothy. He says, do your best. He says, be diligent. I know you're tired. I know it's tough. This is Paul who's been beaten, who's been scourged, who's been let down out of a city by a basket because people are trying to kill him. He's been stoned. He's been hungry. He's not had a place to lay his head to rest. Paul knows the taxing things that happen in ministry, and he's writing to Timothy. He's like, hey, be diligent. Do your best. Stay to it, but be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved. And then he says, a worker. The word for worker there is, is, is more, it's a hired laborer, essentially, He says, rightly handling the word of truth. And rightly handling, it's interesting, and I I, I love this word here because it means in the Greek to cut straight. It's the same word that the the Greek Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses in Proverbs 3.6. Now, many of of us in here may know Proverbs 3.5. You know, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. He will cut you a straight path, is the idea. It's a farmer who, who cuts straight paths and straight furrows in the ground. It's ground that's designed to produce the best possible results, the best crop. Or it could be a carpenter who knows how to cut straight. If you have a carpenter and he's trying to build something or a house and he can't cut straight, how's that going to fit together? But the important thing here is when it comes to approval, it should never suffice for someone to hire a laborer and assume that that person knows how to cut straight. A lot of material may be wasted. So what happens? Someone, they first have to be approved. So he tells him, do your best to present yourself to God as one who is approved. And I love this word. This word is dokimos in the Greek. And it's usually used around Money, but it's acceptable. It means acceptable or pleasing, something to be accepted. But in the ancient world, all money was made of metal. There's no paper money. It was made of metal. It was, they were, it was melted, poured into a mold, and then the, the sides of it or the edges of it, as they would take it out of the mold, would then be smoothed off to get to the correct weight for the value of that money. 
But some dishonest people or money changers would, would smooth down those edges too far. It would look genuine, but in fact, it would be counterfeit. And they would put this money into circulation. But if you were to weigh it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be the weight that it should be for that metal and the value that it says that it is. But there were other men, men of integrity, men of honesty, certain money changers who refused, they would not allow or put counterfeit money into circulation. They only put out genuine, full-weighted money, but these men were called dokimos, or approved. So for us, when I think through that idea of approval and a counterfeit, is that these men had integrity so much so that they rejected the counterfeit. They would not accept it. They would not give the counterfeit. But for us, when we think about our faith, what first do we need to have before we can see or recognize a counterfeit? You have to know what the genuine thing is. You have to be acutely aware of what it is to be a genuine believer. So Paul tells Timothy this list of qualifications. This is what your leaders should look like. Know this and know this well because when you know this, then you can spot the counterfeit. And when you spot the counterfeit, reject that counterfeit. Do not allow it. In Ephesian church, this is what they did not do. They may or not even at this point were able to recognize the counterfeit because all they saw was the falsity of the leaders that were in their church. And they were beginning to believe it. So he tells Timothy, here's what it looks like to lead. Here's what it looks like to approve yourself and to be genuine and reject that counterfeit. If you look further at Colossians 3.17, Paul writes this to the church at Colossae, and he says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, he says, Whatever you do, do all to the, do all to the glory of God. So here he's not writing to leaders specifically, and he's saying, Hey, leaders, or hey, Timothy, do everything to the glory of God. He's telling, he's telling the church at Colossae. He's telling the church at Corinth. He's telling the church, this is what you do. Do everything in the name of the Lord and do everything for his glory. Around here, we say often, excellence in all things and all things the glory of God. There should be a desire that is in every one of us to do things with excellence, not for our own glory, but for God's glory and to do things well. But our problem is, is we require excellence in leaders, but we are perfectly content with the mediocrity within our own hearts. Church, we should be so careful. Paul tells Timothy, this is how you set things in order, but this is how you make sure you are standing right and firm and you are approved before you can approve anyone else. But it all starts here before it goes anywhere. But the importance is there. Timothy had to stand apart in order to set right the wrongs in that church so that people would recognize the truth in him to make the distinction between the counterfeit and the fakeness of those that were among them. So it's never something that is only required of leaders, but it's required of us first. But because before we become leaders first, we are part of the body. So what do we do for those that then have been approved is the, next, is the next thing we begin to work through. For those that have been approved, what do we do for them? If you flip back to uh, uh, the first letter, 1 Timothy, and we'll look at chapter 5, 
Um, in verse 17, I don't have these first couple of scriptures for you, but he says in verse 17, he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So what he's saying now is, is we have this example of poor leadership in Ephesus. Timothy, here's what it looks like to have good leaders and what they should, the qualities that they should have. So then when they rule well, this is how you treat them. They should be worthy of double honor. And then those that are part of you that do the, that labor in preaching and teaching and they do that extra work that you should, you should pay them essentially is what he's saying. He's going to Deuteronomy chapter 25 and he's quoting this this scripture from the law where he's saying an ox who's treading out the grain should be able to eat of it. When he's on the threshing floor and he's doing the work, he should be able to eat as he's working as payment for what he's doing, the labor that he's doing. So he's saying they should be worthy of double honor. But then he says this in verse 19. Verse 19, he says, Do not admit a charge against an elder on the except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he's saying here that no one is perfect. Paul's acknowledging, though there is this list of qualifications... We should approve these men based on these qualifications. They should have this character about them. But not one man on this, per on this earth is perfect. There's no leader that is perfect outside of Jesus. Moses, murderer. King David, adulterer and murderer. Peter, the list of his flaws is very long. But God called imperfect men and set them apart and gifted them with the ability to lead. So there's no perfect man, so we're all going to fall. We're all going to have sin in our life. But he says here, be careful. He says, don't come up just because you don't agree with the leader and throw out some accusation trying to defame them or slander them or get them out. He's saying, don't do it, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You better have evidence before you come before the church and accuse its leader of failure. So he says, be careful in that. But then in verse 20, he does say this, as for those who persist in sin... He says, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Now this, we get, ugh. Rebuke him in the presence of all. We don't like the idea of that. One, we don't like the idea of authority. That's why we bring slander and try and defame leaders because at some point a leader or a boss or something like that in the workplace wrongs us, so we buck that authority because it's not someone's not allowing us to do what we want to do. That's a challenge within our culture in itself. It's just we don't like authority whenever it pushes back against what we want to do. But when sin does exist and it persists, he says you rebuke that sin in the presence of all. That means you go before the church and to use it loosely, I guess, you air out the laundry. But you let people know in the presence of all the sin that has taken place. There are churches and people throughout the church and leaders in high positions that have failed and failed publicly. But the problem with some of their failure is that it was not addressed soon enough. As they were allowed to continue on in their sin. But he says, you should rebuke them in the presence of all. If you go to Galatians 2, you can read of of uh, Peter, he goes to the church at Antioch. This is the first Gentile church. 
and he's there at Antioch, and he's sitting with the Gentiles and talking, and then all of a sudden some Jews from Jerusalem come up. So what Peter does is he all of a sudden gets up, and he walks away from the Gentiles, and he goes over here to the Jews, and he avoids the Gentiles now for fear of the Jews, which is a big deal. Right? This is the first Gentile church, and Peter, the rock on which God would build his church, leaves these Gentiles and comes over here to the Jews. Paul sees this, and what Paul does is rebukes him. Publicly, Paul says here, he says, But when I saw that his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas or Peter before them all, If you, a Jew, act like a Gentile, how are you going to tell Gentiles to then act like Jews? He just rebukes in front of everybody. But what's important about this, this is not Paul, seasoned missionary apostle Paul, after years of ministry. This is Paul, the new guy, if you know your church history. Paul is the new guy at this point, and he says to Peter, the guy, the rock that the church is built on, the elder, the leader of the church, he says to Peter, you're wrong. And he said it in front of everybody. But what hung in the balance was the future of the first Gentile church. Paul understood the gospel and the necessity of preaching its truth. So he rebuked him in the presence of all. For me as a leader, this is comforting to know. Not, the, not, not, not because it just checks and balances, balances and it just keeps me in check for fear of reprisal, but I should fear, as it says, so that all may stand in fear, fear God's judgment and his discipline in my life. But I should welcome it when I do fall because I know and I'm thankful that there are men in this body that care and love me so much that they would minister to my heart and not allow me, if I fall, to live in that place. Because it would, it would damage my leadership, my ministry. It would damage potentially my family, my journey group. The effect of that goes on to where you see in the Ephesian church, the weakness of their poor leadership affected the church all over to where Timothy would have to stay. You see the picture and the importance of that. Then in verse 21, um, Paul says this. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. James speaks to the sin of partiality, but, but Paul is saying here, Timothy, be careful, and what you cannot do is you cannot put an elder or a leader on a pedestal and judge them differently than anyone else. He says, show no partiality. The playing field is level, though there's qualifications that leaders need to meet. No one is above rebuke. They should be above reproach, but not above rebuke. No one is above God's discipline. And he says, don't do anything from partiality. And then highlighting the seriousness of this in verse 22, he says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Some translations say, keep yourself free from sin. But he says, don't be hasty to lay on hands. What he's saying there is, don't be hasty to appoint leaders. Take your time. Now, this is Paul who, with wisdom, learned wisdom, who established this church, appointed these elders and leaders of this church, and then now they failed. So he's telling Timothy, don't be hasty in how you do this. Doing so will run the risk of joining them in their reproach when sin arises. And this very thing right here is how church is split. Because people get in a hurry and they hire someone or put someone in a position of leadership because I like them. Hey, I like that guy. He's funny. He's great in our meetings. Let's make him a leader. I really like him. And we minimize and diminish the quality, 
that God says should be done simply because we like someone. But then what happens is when sin arises, when we're too hasty about appointing someone, and then past sin surfaces or current sin surfaces, then what do we do? It becomes self-preservation because if I hired him, I don't want it smeared on me, so I'm going to help him hide that. We're going to work through it on our own. We're not going to tell the church. We're going to go against what God says. So we try and hide it, but then when it does surface, church is split. You've known that for that long, and you never said anything, so we should be careful and not be hasty. Do not take part in the sins of others, is what he says. Keep yourself pure. And he gives the reason for this in 24. There's an emphasis here that he says the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment. He says there are some that you're going to see the sinfulness on them. You're going to see what they do. It's going to be apparent. But he says with wisdom, the sins of others appear later. So he says be careful. Don't be hasty. There's a process. There's qualification. There's a process of of approval. They should first be tested. Don't be quick to do this because the sins of others appear later. Again, this is Paul recognizing I was a little quick when I left and left these men in charge. Timothy, don't make that mistake. So he says, keep yourself pure. But then after he says, keep yourself pure, he says this in verse 23, and this is a kind of a parenthetical in the middle of this letter. So this highlights for me the personal nature of this letter is that Paul knew Timothy intimately. He knew him very well. And he says to Timothy in this, after he says, keep yourself pure, he says, now no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now it seems odd at first when you read this, in light of everything that we've talked about and what he's communicating to Timothy and the seriousness of it, then all of a sudden he says, don't drink water, have a little wine, you know, because your tummy issues. You know, <laughs> take care of yourself. So I I chew on what what could he mean here, but there are some people that would take this to mean that it's okay for Christians to drink alcohol right here. Don't just drink water, have you some wine too. But he says to Timothy, he says, keep yourself pure. The struggle, one of the struggles that the Ephesian church had with this false leadership, but there there were leaders, you can read in chapter four, that were requiring abstinence from certain foods, abstinence from marriage. They were putting rules on the people that that God's word doesn't. They were telling people to set themselves apart and and abstain from all of these things and that's how you become righteous and godly because that's what they do. Somehow they're able to abstain from everything on the planet. But when you fail, but I'm going to hide everything that I do because of my righteousness. That's the problem that he's facing here. But he tells Timothy, hey, don't buy into the legalism and the false teaching and the lies of the people that have been leading that church. He says, keep yourself pure. Purity comes from within, not what you put in. So when it comes to alcohol, he tells them, hey, don't drink water, which back then was not filtered. They didn't have bottled water. It probably wasn't entirely good. He had tummy issues. So he's like, Timothy, don't don't fall into that legalism. Have some wine and help your ailments. And after all, if you look at the list of the, the qualifications for leaders, it doesn't say abstain from alcohol. It says don't be a drunkard. Don't be addicted to too much wine. So let's, again, be careful to not input something into the text that's not there. But there is wisdom to be had. Though all things are lawful, not all things are beneficial. But the idea is purity is not because you drink a little wine. Purity comes from within. So he says, keep yourself pure. Don't fall into the sin of other people. And then he closes this section on a positive note. 
if sin, if there's sin that's conspicuous and go before people in judgment, but there's sin that arises later on, the converse, the converse of that is true as well. So also good works are conspicuous. You're going to see goodness in people. It's what he says. Not everyone is bad. Not everybody is just sinful. You're going to see goodness and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. He says all things will eventually out. Be it sinfulness, be it goodness. I had a wonderful conversation with a lady after the first service. Just on that idea. It's her desire to serve within this body and what that looks like. And I said, I said, sister, I said, there is goodness that is present. You being here this morning, you stepping, saying, stepping up saying, hey, I will serve in that way. Before we even talked about qualifications for servants, she saw a need and she stepped up and she said, I would love to serve in that way. And how do I do more? She said, I said, your goodness is apparent. But the good that you do in your service now will not be hidden. Whatever may go unseen in that area will be apparent one day. Trust the Lord in that. So Paul encourages Timothy, there is goodness there. I know for certain and am encouraged, and I can speak for the other leadership of this body at this point, of the encouragement that we have knowing that there are men in this body presently that are qualified to be overseers and elders within this body. I know for certain that there are men and women in this body that are qualified to be deacons or servants within this body. I know for certain, based on experience, that I am able to serve presently with those people. Their goodness is apparent. Their goodness is clear. And I know that there is goodness in others that may not be clearly seen now that the Lord in his time will raise up leaders and servants within, within this body. There's always a need. Just like the church at Ephesus, there is a need for it, a dire need for good leadership and know what that looks like. I can stand and confirm for you today that we're not in the place of Ephesus in the state that they are. Praise the Lord. But there is challenges and there's always a need for good leadership. And that's not just at the top. There is a need for wonderful, qualified leaders for our kids on a Sunday morning in kids ministry. There is a need for qualified faithful men and women to lead in student ministry on Wednesday night. There is a need for qualified, faithful men and women to lead in our journey groups. There are needs and pockets of ministry all over this place in our church here at Stone Point where quality, faithful leaders and servants should be. We have those in place. There's always room for more. But the deal for us and the encouragement that I want to leave this morning is to understand, yes, the quality of leadership and the importance on leadership. As the leader goes, so goes the church, so goes the organization, so goes the team. So goes the country, if we want to go that far. But leadership matters, but let us first be those that would present ourselves to God as those that are approved. In our own hearts, in our own minds, let us be approved workers that have no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth and understanding what that is so that whenever we see the counterfeit, when we see what is fake, when we see what is wrong and sinful, that we may call that out and rebuke that. 
If you're in a journey group and you see your journey group leader fail, that does not mean that we're going to come on a Sunday morning, put your journey group leader right here and blah, blah, blah. But what that does mean is you should be prepared within your journey group and your group of people to bring that before the entirety of your group. And if you're a journey group leader in here, do not set yourself above the people in your group. Though you are a leader, you are a shepherd of a small flock of people, you're accountable to God for those people. You're not above those people. So allow that when failure happens. The problem with the Ephesian leaders is they refuse to confess and repent of their sin because there was nobody that knew the difference to call them out. So Paul leaves Timothy, instructs him greatly. Here's what it looks like. Here's what you do. Maybe you'll be a church that does that. But my encouragement is that it starts here. If I do not do my best, if I'm not diligent to present myself to God as one approved, what sin may be harbored there that might out later that would damage the work that I could do here? And the same is for you. Not within the church, but within your family men over your wives and your children. Manage your own household well. That's what he says to the elders. That's what he says to the deacon. Care for your wife. Care for your children. Work there first. And if you can't do that, why would you do anything in the church? But may we have the wisdom to see that and to rebuke that and to help correct that so that we all would be those that are approved. Maybe not aspiring to be leaders, but desiring to be qualified. I pray is the goal for each and every one of us in this body. And we will see the Lord do miraculous things through us here if we would all come to that place and that desire. I love you, church. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for, thank you for Paul. I thank you for Timothy. I thank you for your, their leadership. Jesus, I thank you for your leadership. Lord, you coming down from heaven to lead a ragtag group of broken men and setting them on a path of discipleship that they would then become an apostleship, faithful and true, understanding what it means to lead and to direct people to you, Lord. As Paul said, Lord, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, he says to the church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I pray that from my own heart, Lord, that I could proclaim that and say that to any person in here, Lord. And when there's sin in my heart, I pray, Lord, for men and women around me to love me enough to rebuke me for it, Lord, but a humility in my heart to receive that and confess that and repent of that, Lord. Thus is the picture of faithful ministry and leadership. And I pray that we lead ourselves well, Lord, that by your spirit we learn what it means and how to lead, Lord. Three things need to be present in all things that we do, Lord. And that is your spirit, that is your word, and that is your people. And I pray that those three things are prevalent in my heart. Continually, I pray that they're prevalent in the hearts and minds of the body believers here at Stone Point Church, Lord. That you may continue to shape and mold lives and change lives and save lives. community in this county, Lord, that you may be made famous, Lord, not because we have awesome leadership, Lord, but that you appoint those that are faithful to be an example to the flock, so the flock may be an example 
love you and we thank you, Lord. And I just I pray for this as we continue to work through, Lord, and remember what it is that you've set out to do with the church, Lord, and how you would have us to do it. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Thank you, and it's in your name. That we